On today's More Than a Test, we have Thomas Arnett. He's a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. All of his research, all of his publications are around K-12 education and innovation in the K-12 space. He's going to talk to us about a lot of really cool, innovative uh, school models, different things schools have tried uh, since COVID, and you know what he sees for the future of education. It's a really great conversation, and we're so glad you're here. Hey, Tom. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, we were just talking a minute ago about all the research I've been reading and all the things that you've published recently. And it, it's, it's, it's so exciting because there's so much to talk about. Um, and so we're going to dive right in and talk about your role right now. You're a senior researcher at the Clayton Christensen Institute. For those that don't know, can you tell us what that institute is all about and what your role is all about? Yeah. The Clayton Christensen Institute was founded by Clayton Christensen, who was a professor at Harvard who studied innovation across a lot of different sectors. If you've heard the term uh, disruptive innovation, he's the person that coined that term. Now it gets used in a lot of ways <laughs> that are much broader than, than I think he intended in his research. But the idea um, stems from him looking at why is it that sometimes organizations that have all the resources and capabilities in the world struggle to adopt certain types of innovations. And that led to a theory and a body of theories that really guide the work we, we do. Uh, in particular, we're a nonprofit, and we use those theories to look at challenges in social sector areas. So in K-12 education, healthcare, global development, um, higher education. And we try and use those theories to then lend insight to help crack and solve and point, uh, shed new light on some of the perennial challenges in those sectors. Um, so my work is within the K-12 uh, wing of our, our organization, looking at uh, school systems and systems change in education. Okay, so your focus area is K-12 education, and we'll talk about that in a second. And you're a senior researcher, but like, what is your, what is your data? How do you decide what to research? What does that time look like? How, how, how does that look at the Clayton Christensen Institute? Yeah, well, if you ask my kids what I do day to day, they'd say, you just sit on your computer all the time. We don't know what you do. <laughs> And how can you tell us not to be on devices when you're in your computer? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the it really varies from project to project. I'll say, generally speaking, uh, we're trying to, to uncover insights for different sectors of the field. So I may start off with just an idea of, hey, here's something interesting. Uh, when I look at you know, stuff I've read in the news about K-12 education or things I've seen in a school visit, and that sparked some ideas of, hey, I think we have an interesting angle to share on that topic. And that may lead then to interviewing people in the field, learning about different programs, visiting different schools and different programs, and then usually writing those up as case studies, writing, writing up white papers that discuss the ideas we're sharing. Um, we write things in our blog posts. Um, so it's a lot of just analysis, writing, and then trying to share the, the insights we've come to through presentations at conferences, um, joining different convenings of thought leaders, that kind of stuff. Okay, so what is something that you 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 were looking? You're kind of looking across the sphere or whatever, and you were like, "Oh my god, this is so interesting." What's something that like really caught your attention recently? Let's see. Recently. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, the first thing that comes to mind is the all the the news about the the reading wars, um, the the podcast that came out recently. I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, that that talks about just the science of reading. Um, I think that caught my attention on two fronts. One is the questions around like, okay, so 
there's this the science that shows how reading should be taught. It impacts me personally, actually, because my son, I have a son who has really struggled with reading, um, and it sheds some insight and light into you know making sense of why he struggled. Um, but also just trying to understand, okay, if we know if we know how reading should be taught, but what does it actually take to get there? I'd say that's probably a theme across a lot of my work is not how should education be different, but more of how do we get there? How do we, given the systems that we operate within, how do we institute those kinds of changes? Yeah. And the podcast you're talking about is Sold a Story, um, I'm assuming is the one that we've all (laughs) listened to, right? Exactly. And this is Mm -hmm. a a really important one to us at Amira because we're we're working on helping um, people better understand literacy education. And one of the things that she points out and that you have done some research on is, is, you know, teachers colleges and, and the preparation around, um, teachers, because part of the problem was, is that teachers weren't prepared to teach, you know, phonics and science of reading. They were, they were kind of given this instruction around balanced literacy, you know, is what's your experience with trying to get teacher preparation programs to change? Mm -hmm. Well, so when I first joined the Institute, uh, coming up on a decade now, that was a real central area of my work was, you know, we kind of had this notion that um, for different models of education to be implemented, they needed to be able to draw, uh, to, to hire and work with teachers who were set up to operate in those different types of models of schooling. Um, but teachers' preparation programs generally weren't, you know, their programs weren't designed for particular types of models or particular innovations or particular programs like um, implementing the science of reading. And so one of the big insights we thought was that um, a number of school systems, and, and in many cases, these were, you know, really forward-thinking charter schools, realizing that, hey, you know, we actually need to get into the work of teacher development ourselves to build a teacher pipeline that aligns with the type of um, instructional practices and philosophies that guide the work that we do. And so broadly speaking, that's one of the things that we see a lot in fact, one of Clayton Christensen's theories called the theory of modularity says that um, when you're trying to improve a system and performance isn't where you want it to be, often the path forward to make innovation happen and make improvement happen requires innovating across the parts of the system uh, or integrating, excuse me, integrating across the parts of the system that are interdependent from making success happen. So hence, um, you know, seeing schools actually get into the business of teacher development and teacher preparation. And fortunately, you know, there's, there's states that have policies that can allow them to get into that, into that business, but it's not always easy. You know, the, the business models aren't, you know, designed to go together necessarily, but that's what, that's what the direction we saw many going. It's funny. Cause I've known for a long time that charter schools did that. Like I know Aspire has their own teacher preparation program. They're one of the mm-hmm. big networks kept us some of that. I didn't realize that it's because they realized they were they were building something unique, and so they needed a unique preparation program. I thought it was just like I, I don't know what I was thinking. So that's really interesting that there was some some real thought to that. To their model is a little bit different than what universities or other preparation programs are working for towards. Um, so it, it's interesting you you say this about you know charter schools and things because at the very beginning of this we talked about how you know your research is around disruption mm-hmm. <laughs> and K twelve education, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I can't imagine a harder like bridge to gap, you know, gap to bridge, you know? And so I'm just curious, you know, is that, your, is that your experience? Is it really hard for K-12 system? I think Steve Carnavale told us recently on the podcast that it takes 16 years for education systems to really change. And, and this is what you're doing all day, every day. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Well, another key, probably core focus of my work is trying to understand how does disruptive innovation actually work in education or how do the ideas from the theories of disruptive innovation apply given that disruption doesn't happen in education the way it happens in other sectors. In other sectors, you know, they're very market-based and it's like you either got to be on the front end of disruption or you go out of business. Um, For better or for worse, education isn't like that. You know, the the good side of that is that, um, you know, Schools are often foundational members of a community. And if we had schools just going out of business left and right, whenever some new wave of disruption came along, it would really create a lot of upheaval um, within the communities that those schools serve. But the flip side of that is that because disruption doesn't happen organically, um, at the same time, it's also not just this organic mechanism for bringing about systems change. So I'd say that really what, what, makes it so that I actually have a job doing what I do is trying to figure out, okay, if disruption isn't happening organically, how can we create the conditions that enable the types of system change that disruption brings about in other sectors, um, but within the you know, context and under the circumstances that make sense for K-12 education? Okay. And so if it, when you're saying like disruption doesn't happen organically, the one time I would say, I don't know if it's organically, but forced organically Uh maybe was during COVID, right? Like schools Mm -hmm. had to change. We had to adapt. I was a principal at the time. Tell me, um, you know, coming out of COVID now, do you think that we, we, we followed that with like a more disruptive culture or do you think we've kind of gone back to the old ways with where we are now? Yeah. Well, let me make a clarification. When I mentioned the top, how, the term disruption gets used in a lot of ways. Um, You know, generally in our, in our use of the word disruption in English, we just mean anything that's like a drastic change to the way things have been in the past. Clayton Christensen though, was really looking at disruption as this phenomenon where you have um, asymmetries in the motivation between um, new entrants to a sector and the incumbents in the sector where new entrants are motivated to figure out and try new things and develop new technologies that the established organizations are generally going to ignore. Now, COVID was an interesting disruption. It was a disruption, I think, in the first way, the more you know, commonly yeah. used um, way we talk about disruption. Um, and it did create a ton of headaches for schools and a lot of challenges and a lot of you know, pushes on school systems um, to, to have to operate differently and to think differently. Um, but coming out of COVID, I think, unfortunately what we've seen by and large has been school systems reverting back to the tried and true, you know, what Larry Cuban and David Tyak call the grammar of schooling, you know, where we have age-based age graded classrooms, you know, students move through school at a fixed pace as cohorts. Uh, That really hasn't changed. We've seen the introduction of technology into schools kind of as a cramming the cramming the technology in, in a way that's plug compatible with how schools have historically operated but not, we haven't seen technology leading to the redesign of how school works um, to make it more personalized or more learner-centered. Um, so that gets back to, like, how do we actually create those kind of systems change? That's what my work is about. Yeah, and that makes sense. One of the things that I read was that you knew, you put technology as, like, one of the first and easiest ways, I guess, to disrupt education. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, well... In the disruption innovation research, um, Clayton Christensen identified three things that enable that type of systemic transformation that comes about as a result of disruptive innovation. The first one is the technology. There has to be a technology 
that can enable disruptive innovation. But technology itself isn't inherently sustaining to the conventional model or disrupting to the conventional model. Technology, its impact really depends on how it gets used. And so how it gets used then ties to the second piece, which is that disruption requires a disruptive organizational model or a business model. In other words, people have to say, using this technology, how can we operate differently? How can our organization use different resources and different processes to achieve different goals than what organizations have done in the past? And so that's the second piece. The, so the first is the, the technology. The second is the organizational model. The third is what Clayton Christensen called a value network. So organizations live in a broader ecosystem that really shapes what do you have to do as an organization in order to survive and thrive. So in a business, your value network or your ecosystem or environment would be your suppliers, your distributors, but most importantly, like your investors, your customers. Um, you know, they're the, the places you turn to to get the resources you need and to get the funding you need. And so the organization then develops its capabilities to work within that context of, you know, how do we get the funding? How do we produce what we produce given the resources that are available to us? And that then over time shapes the priorities of the organization. Um, as people are making day-to-day decisions um, that involve trade-offs around like, should we invest in A or invest in B? Should we do project A or project B? The way they prioritize those decisions is shaped by just the priorities they've internalized often in their culture and in their key metrics that come from what does it take to survive in this context. So when we look at education, you know, education doesn't have investors and customers, but it has you know state and federal policy and sources of funding that come from states and, and the federal government. They have their school board and all the diverse interests represented in the people elected to their board. They have different parent groups and community groups that, you know, have the right to come and show up at the school board meeting or to have conversations with the principal or with the teacher and say, this is what I want or this is what I don't want. They have families that do vote with their feet and decide, do I want to be in this school or not in this school? And those, that context creates similar pressures on a school system for how do you have to operate? Where do you get your resources? Um, what are the processes you use to deliver what you deliver to your to your community? And that ends up shaping their priorities. And so to try and tie this all then together, if you really want to see a change in the systems that we operate within, it takes all three of those things. Enabling technologies that it's not technology for technology, it's for technology's sake. It's technology to enable new organizational models and those organizational models have to emerge within new value networks that can help them shape their priorities in a different direction. So I'll pause there, but let me know. It might be helpful if I give like a concrete example of what these abstract terms mean. Yeah, I think a concrete example would be great. Go for it. Yeah. So a lot of the, the things that I've studied in my research that get me really excited are schools and programs that operate in ways that look very different from conventional education. Um, so there's a couple of schools I've seen in school districts where the school day doesn't look like a school day. Um, students can often come and go when they please. So picture a high school where there's not a, you know, a bell schedule that says, here's first period, here's second period, here's third period, here's your courses. Imagine students just kind of showing up and the space that they're in is more like a professional work environment. 
Um, and they all have different projects and different materials that they're working with and things that they're working towards. Uh, when they come in, they meet with a, a teacher who's like a mentor advisor that sits down with them and says, like, what are your goals? What are you interested in? How can we then design a custom educational experience that helps you pursue your goals and complete whatever is required for you to have the credentials you need to go on to a career or go on to college? Um, they then spend the day working on the things that are relevant to their interests. So that might be spending part of the day doing an online course. It might be spending part of the day working on a project with some peers. It might be part of the day in an internship. And the day doesn't have to be dictated by the school's schedule um, because they can, make, they can make learning very flexible to the student's needs. Now, here's where the enabling technology comes in is that online learning is often a key piece of making that kind of a model work. Online learning as in like courses that students can take in a self-paced way or material students can work through in a self-paced way. And this doesn't mean that students are in front of screens all day, but what it does mean is that teachers can say, look, you can get a lot of the foundational learning um, through some of these resources. And now I, as a teacher, can focus on being a mentor, giving you higher order feedback on your projects, on your essays, giving you the kind of feedback that AI and, and technology can't offer you. Um, I can, you know, play a role in guiding you to what is the right internship or the right project for you to work on. Um, and so the teacher's day, the teacher's role really shifts too, because they leverage technology to then say, look, I don't need to spend my day focusing on how do I cover content with a, cl with a class of students during a class period. I can focus on what do my particular students need and how do I design the right interventions or the right feedback um, how do I spend my time building relationships with them to help them fulfill their goals and fulfill their potential? So the last piece then, so I talked about, you know, school in, those, in that sense is a very different model. It operates with very different processes. It leverages online learning to make those different processes workable. Um, also to enable things like competency-based ed, where you, you know, can use technology to track students and measure their competencies and have them learning at different paces. Um, but for, all, for those types of schools to emerge, they have to emerge from a different value network. You can't take a conventional school and just say, do things differently. Or you can't say, hey, we're building a new neighborhood school and everybody in this geographic region is designed, is assigned to go to the school and the school is going to be different. Um, if you tried that, you'll get a lot of pushback from teachers saying like, ah, this isn't how I was trained to teach. This isn't what I spent my career learning how to do. It doesn't make well, sense to me. And you and I think like yeah. Mary Cuban would tell us that it's not just the teachers, the parents, the ever the mm -hmm. students are gonna say, This is not what I expect, you know, this is not what I believe is real school, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it, and so it's the value networks not just for the teachers, but for everyone in that community to to adopt this idea that what school is can look different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And similarly, like state policy, often these programs operate under a label such as um, alternative education or virtual schooling or career and technical education, where the state says, okay, you can play by slightly different rules. You don't have to count attendance the same way or cover material the same way. And so, yeah, you need all these players, the teachers, the families, the state policy to give it a different context where they can focus on doing school differently. Okay, so what you're talking about, I'm sure to most people, sounds a little radical, right? Yeah, it, I'm used, sure it does. They're used to their bell schedules. They, they can already picture their high schooler who, like, won't get out of bed, much less go, like, manage their own day. Can you think of something that might be a similar example but or, or, or just something that's a little bit disruptive for schools that isn't quite so extreme, that maybe isn't, like, a total redefining of school? 
Mm-hmm. Well, one that I found really interesting that I think in some ways is like a precursor or a gateway to helping create systemic shifts to more learner-centered and personalized models is uh, the Modern Classrooms Project. Have you come across them at all? I haven't. Tell me more. So it's a, it's a nonprofit that was started by two teachers in the D.C. public schools, um, Kareem Farah and um, Rob Barnett. Uh, they were math teachers, and they struggled with the reality that like, students weren't coming to school every day, or they often were coming in late. And that created gaps in their learning. And they were like, how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to keep students on track when they're missing a lot of the content instruction that happens in our class? And so they, on their own, figured out, well, how do we can do a couple of things. We can um, leverage online learning to take a lot of our instructional, our instruction, and we'll make our own little videos that explain the content to students um, and then put those online so students can access them on demand, whether they're in class or not. And then because students can access these on demand, they can move at their own pace and we can go to a mastery-based system where they progress based on you know, you master concept A, you move on to concept B. It's not, well, we're moving on to concept B because it's Tuesday on the third week of the unit. Um, and then they empower students to do self-directed learning and they shift their role as the teacher to be more about, let me check in with my students, see where they need help, give them guidance. Um, so they started doing this in their classrooms in DC. Um, after a while, expanded it to sharing it with other teachers in their building. And now they're working with um, thousands of teachers across the country um, helping teachers who are interested. And that's a key thing is this isn't something that gets pushed into a whole school system. It's like they make it available and teachers that are interested in trying this model, um, they've created um, materials and resources to help teachers adopt this new type of practice. But within, you know, teachers, fascinating thing about teachers is they have a lot of freedom um, within the, the constraints of, you know, you're given your schedule, you're given your curriculum, but no one's, most teachers, no one's coming in and checking on what you do day in and day out. And so there's a lot of room to experiment. And they kind of have this toolkit now to say, hey, if you want to try something different, here's the resources that we can offer that help you do school differently. Okay, this reminds me of one of the quotes I pulled from one of your articles, which was, understanding what motivates teachers to change is key. Um, and so I'm curious, what do you know, in this example or in any example, what is it that motivates teachers to change? I feel like, you know, at Amira, we talk a lot about how, you know, having kids read out loud to a program is brand new to teachers. It's often different. And, and we're often trying to figure this out, like what will help teachers want to change? So what do you know about what motivates teachers to change? Yeah. Well, first off, I want to say from our research, one of the key insights is it's different things for different teachers. Um, we did a study a handful of years ago where we were wondering, like, why is it that teachers adopt a new set of instructional practices like project-based learning or blended learning? And we interviewed teachers using one of Clayton Christensen's theories and frameworks called the jobs to be done framework. So it's a kind of a funny name, jobs to be done. But basically what it implies is that when people have struggles that come up in their lives, they look for a solution they can pull into their lives to address that struggle. So, you know, your toilet breaks you call a plumber, you have a job that leads to hiring a plumber, right? Or someone close to you passes away and you think, oh my goodness, I need to get a will and trust together. You hire a lawyer. So similarly, when teachers are struggling, um, those circumstances lead them to pull new solutions, new practices into their, into their classrooms and into their lives. But what we saw is that there were different jobs or different circumstances that motivated different teachers. So whereas... I'd say the, the largest, um, the most common 
job or circumstance for teachers that we uncovered was one where teachers were saying, look, I've spent a lot of time honing my practices and I am not interested in throwing out everything I've, do- I've figured out because I've spent a lot of time developing my skills and my expertise. But I know that there's a couple lesson plans that always that don't work well, or there's a couple students that have a hard time reaching. So if you can give me things that are manageable, that are easy to slot into the current practices I use and easy to adopt, they don't require hours and hours of professional development, those are solutions I'm interested in. But if you're asking me to throw out everything I've done in the past and try something radically different, doesn't make sense. You know, for perfectly rational reasons, it doesn't make sense. In contrast, the teachers that we did see making radical leaps and changes in their practice, they only did that when they got to a point where they were saying, look, the conventional approach to instruction just is not working for me. And I need, I need to try something radically different. When they say it's not working for them, is it, is it that they're not enjoying the job or their data is not good? Like do what, what, when they say that, what does that look like? Do you know? Yeah. Well, it was different things for different teachers. So for example, one teacher we interviewed, who's was a high school algebra teacher, um, had taught for, you know, a number of years. And he said, I just came to the point where I felt like teaching was soulless because the way we did math at my school, I put problems on the board, students copy the problems down, they do a problem set, they take a test, they regurgitate the algorithms I've shown them for the test, and then they forget it. And math has no connection to the real world and no connection to solving real world problems. It's just a bunch of you know steps to memorize, repeat, and then forget. And so he said, like, I was at the point where I, I hated it so much, I was going to quit and become a truck driver for the rest of my career until a colleague introduced them to master-based education, and then they figured out how to implement in their classrooms. But for other teachers, you know, other teachers that we talked to, they'd say like, yeah, my, my day-to-day classroom experience is actually fine. My students were doing well. Our test scores were, were good. Um, but I stayed in touch with my students over the years, and I found that what we were doing just wasn't preparing them for life after school. They were so used to us creating this highly instructed environment that set them up to succeed that when they were out in the real world without those supports, they were floundering. And so for them, it was, I need to try something different that really empowers my students to, you know, be the masters of their own education and not expect us to, to pull them along and walk them through all the steps. Um, for other teachers, it was really you know, it was struggling. It was, you know, I'm trying to do differentiated instruction and I just, I don't know how to keep my head above water and actually know and differentiate to all the needs of the different students in my classroom. So it was different things, but I think that the key thing to highlight is that the teachers that had the appetite for radically different things had to first get to that point where like, I am frustrated to, like frustrated to the point that I'm ready to leave my job, not just this is hard. Um, and that so and it was a small I want to say it was a small subset of the folks we interviewed that had reached that level of frustration. Now, this really resonates with um, what we're experiencing at Amira. What we find is so interesting is that our biggest fans are often really span the experience, right? Level. So mm-hmm. like we have teachers who have been teaching for 30 years who love Amira and teachers who have been teaching for three years who love Amira. But what, what they keep saying is my kids aren't reading. Right. Like I, yeah. I know, and, and the soul, the story thing really resonates with mm-hmm. them. And they're like, I, I, I don't care what I have to do. I know my kids aren't reading and I know that mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared for this. And so I need to do something different. And so I, everything you're saying really resonates with our experience and kind of puts a name to what we've, what we've seen from teachers, um, which is so yeah. interesting. 
There's another article that really resonates or really is like near and dear to Amira's heart um, that you have around uh, kind of unbundling teachers and assessments. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, would you talk about kind of what you said in that? And I'll, and I'll tell you why it matters so much to us. Yeah. Well, some of this, I'll say that one was in particular prompted by my own experiences. I, before I got into the research role at the, Inst- the Christensen Institute, I was a middle school math teacher. And I'm going to admit maybe something that teachers aren't excited to admit, but when my students would struggle and I would have to give out grades, I felt the tension of like, I don't want to make them feel bad. Um, I don't want to discourage them. Do I make, you know, my grading system a little bit easier to help them feel confident? Or do I really like stick it to them and say, no, these are the standards and you haven't met them yet and you're getting a bad grade. Um, Because part of us too, I wrestled with like, did they not learn because they didn't put in the effort or did I not teach them as well? Um, And so that led to, I think some of the ideas that led to that post around uh, really advocating for the idea of unbundling the role of the person who assesses students and benchmarks, are you on track from the role of the person who is guiding them? You know, in other fields, like it'd be crazy if we had sporting events where we said, okay, the coach for your team is now also going to be the referee, right? Like there's clear reasons why we don't make the coach the referee because they're biased, right? And you want the coach to be on the side of the players, not having to be the one that says, go, go, go. But actually, no, no, that, that goal didn't count. Like it creates a real relationship tension. If your coach is the person that on one hand is cheering you on and the other hand is shutting you down and saying that one didn't count or that's not good enough. Um, so it makes sense, I think, in a lot of domains to separate those roles. But in teaching, we create this, this weird tension. Now, that isn't to say that teachers shouldn't ever look at students' work. Like, teachers looking at students' work and seeing, you know, having an eye on where students are struggling, what they're succeeding on, what they're, what they're not doing well is really important. But I think just at the end of the day, if we can move to, you know, whether it's standards-based grading or competency-based grading, getting to a system where the people who determine if students have mastered what they need to master aren't the people who are also trying to teach them, um, it might be uncomfortable at first, but I think it could really help create some some objectivity and, and, some, and some progress in the way instruction works. So the reason this is so, I, I love everything you're saying, and the reason this is so near and dear to our heart at Amira is the way Amira works is children read out loud to her the way they would to a teacher, and then she offers a teacher a transcript of the reading with what was right and wrong and, and areas for um, focus on instruction and resources for instruction. Um, so it's very similar to how a teacher would listen to a child read, right? And then the same, and, and teachers can go back and listen to the recordings. Uh, and we had a school in Arizona who um, they they were like, you know, Amira's scores are always lower than our teachers. Like we compare and contrast what the teachers heard and they were so kind. They let us do a recording of teachers scoring and listening and Amira scoring and listening. And just to exactly your point, just a few times the teachers would just like give the word, right? The kid would get stuck <laughs> and the teacher would uh-huh. give the word and well-meaning incredibly. And, and the best of the conversation afterwards, because the teacher, every single one said, well, I know they know it. And, yeah. and, and so it was a great opportunity for all of us to kind of learn of the importance of having at least some opportunities to your point, not all the opportunities for a student, but some opportunities to be objective and done, you know, by mm-hmm. someone who isn't going to say, I know they know the word so we can see what they really know. Um, so it's super mm-hmm. interesting. Do you have any examples of uh, other examples of schools kind of finding a way to, to unbundle these or, or not really yet? Well, I actually haven't seen it much in the K to space. The place I have seen it of is seen it is in higher ed. Western Governors University unbundles the role of their professors. 
Um, and they have some that focus on, um, you know, being the instructor that, that covers the content. They have some that focus more on like a mentorship role. And then they have a, a third role that is the one who develops and administers the assessments and gives students their grades. And so that's where I've seen it, but not so much in the K through hope space. Interesting, but at least we've got one. Okay. So part of what makes this conversation so fun is if anyone's watching on YouTube, you are just like animated and excited and <laughs> like everything I ask, you're like, let me give you this example. It's really fun. Um, and I think a lot of teachers are listening and thinking this, this, like, I would love to sit around and, and read and think about like what could be changing the K-12 space. But you started as a teacher, right? Isn't that where you started mm-hmm. out of college? Tell me about that. Yeah. So I, um, when I came out of my undergrad, I actually hadn't gone through an education school, but I, I joined the Teach for America program, which I know has its pros and its cons. And I, um, and I, but I'll say, you know, the challenge I faced as a teacher was being, being a new teacher is hard for everyone. Having the limited training that I had made it more challenging teaching in the context where we were in, where they put us into often schools that are struggling. Um, that was challenging. Um, but as a teacher, I often found myself just wondering, like, how do I really help my students better? I came in with all these, like, idealistic notions of how I was going to be the teacher that made home visits and got to know my students really well and built relationships with their families and became the person that, like, they did, I, I could lead them to what they needed to do because they knew how much I cared about them. And then I got into the day-to-day of teaching and found, like, I can barely keep my head above water. Um, you know, I have one hour of prep to prep for five hours of teaching and, and where, where does the time come to even do all these other things that I intended to do? And so I, I kind of came to the realization of like, if I kept at this, like I could, I, I know that I'm not the best teacher and there's a lot to be said for teachers that really spend their time honing their experience and getting really good at what they do. Um, but I felt like to some extent, I could only do, I would only ever get so far trying to outpace um, some of the deficits, not in schools, but in just the system, the way the system's set up, where it's set up such that students move at, at a uniform pace and they're supposed to get standardized whole group instruction. And teachers do a lot of ho- heroic work, I think, to adapt to the rigidity of that system. And that's why, you know, students don't just get a really standardized experience. It's because the efforts of great teachers that are going in saying like, no, (laughs) I'm not just going to cover the material and make everyone listen to the same thing at the same time. I'm going to figure out how to differentiate. I'm going to figure out how to adjust to what my students need. Um, But the system wasn't designed to work that way. And so I kind of came to a realization that like, I want to be involved in trying to help change the system. Um, So I made a hard choice kind of halfway through the year um, school year, I was planning to keep teaching. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to pivot and I'm going to go to grad school and use that as an opportunity to figure out how to get into, you know, and getting involved in changing the system. And it was while I was in grad school that I found Clayton Christensen's work. Um, he and a colleague of his, Michael Horn, who co-founded our Institute had written a book that talked about um, disruptive innovation and how it offered a lens for seeing a way to change the system Um, and I, you know, candidly, I'll say like, as a teacher, I saw cool models and cool practices. Um, and there's lots out there and there's, there's lots that have been around for a long time. But the big question I always had as a teacher was like, but how does this ever make it to my school? And I felt like what they offered is not just a different vision of what education could be, but a set of theories that could show how do we get there? 
Um, and that attracted me. And I it just so happened that as I was finishing grad school, the Institute had a position that kind of fit my background and interests and I applied and I've been here ever since working on the work I do. And how long have you been there? Coming up on 10 years, 10 years uh, in June. Next and month. do you feel like schools are actually applying these learnings? Like, are you, are, here's my question, really. Are you feeling like you're in the ivory tower or do you feel like things are happening down below at the schools? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say we're in the ivory tower. One of the benefits we have is that our research is not produced for academic journals because sometimes academic journals can be really narrow and esoteric because, you know, to publish and earn tenure and things like that in the academic system, you end up carving out a little niche that may not be relevant. Um, You know, our aim is for our research to have impact. So we write about things and we write in a way that is accessible um, and that tries to speak to some of the bigger challenges that people in the field are facing. Um, you know, have we seen the you know the massive transformations in the system? Not yet, but I'm really hopeful that we are headed in that direction. That we will, you know, see education, you know, in in the next ten years become much more uh, just work a lot better for more students and for more teachers. Um, and you know, right now where teachers face challenges of burnout. Um, and feeling like the job isn't sustainable. Um, I really hope that the things that we research, that they become more mainstream so that it makes the job more sustainable and more workable for teachers. Um, but it, it takes time, you know? Disruption, especially education, is not something that happens overnight. Um, and that's, I guess, a, a fact that is just the nature of the, the thing we're wrestling with. So if you don't think feel like things have changed in the last 10 years, what makes you think, what gives you hope that it's going to change in the next mm-hmm. 10 years? Yeah. Well, I would say things, things have changed in the last 10 years. They just haven't changed in like a broad, sweeping, widespread way. But we have seen a lot of cool things that have taken off within the last 10 years. Like the school models that I was describing, a lot of those didn't exist 10 years ago um, and have leveraged some of the new technologies that have become available to enable those types of models. Um, what makes me optimistic is I think there's just a growing sense that, that we need school to be different. Um, there's a think tank called Populist that put out a report recently where they, they talk about the gap between perception, people's perceptions of what everyone else thinks and what they think. Um, and they found that in K-12 education, there's, there's pretty broad recognition that we don't want schools to just be about college prep and test preparation um, and drill and kill on um, very narrowly defined academic content. But what they call out in their survey is that while most people don't think that's what school should be about, most people think that other people think that's what school should be about. Um, and that's a barrier to, you know, a barrier to making change happen. But I think there is this growing recognition of like, we need schools to be different um, for the sake of our students, for the sake of our teachers. Um, and that makes me optimistic that that will, that desire for change starts to catalyze both experiments that are happening of you know, educators that are, you know, whether it's being the entrepreneur within your district and launching a new alternative school or a new virtual school or a new blended school or a new career and technical program, or, you know, in some cases being the entrepreneur that figures out like, I'm going to go start a micro school or a learning pod. Um, I think there's a lot of energy around that right now. And I think as those innovators are figuring out more and more, like, how do I make this work? Not just from me and my class, but, for more, you know, to be more accessible to more students, um, we'll see more people just attracted to adopting those types of models and more school districts saying like, hey, this, 
these programs that have kind of been in a niche for a while, like let's figure out how to grow those and, and make, make it so more students have access to those opportunities. You mentioned some programs that you admire. Is there something that like you haven't seen, but like you would dream of schools doing? You know, the things I think I dream of actually exist. It's not that they don't exist in the world. They just don't exist in a way that is widely available for lots of students. They exist in little tiny pockets of cool little um, programs within districts or cool little, um, you know, homeschool programs, things like that. Um, so really what I, what I hope to see is just to see those things evolve and become more, more mainstream and more widely accessible. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, and, and cool that people are dreaming it up even before someone who gets to spend the all day thinking about it comes up with it. All right. We are running low on time, but it's really fun to like see all the things that you hope for and, and all the energy you have, despite what you know about K-12 education. We've got five questions we ask every single guest, and I'm going to ask them of you now. Um, so here we go. And, and we call them, you, you know, you can think of them as rapid fire, but take your time. It's fine. Um, so the first one is the podcast is called More Than a Test because um, at Amira, we're really trying to move teachers to the next generation of assessment where kids are being assessed every single day as opposed to like three times a year. And we, we, we assess what their, their reading ability based on like in the moment. Um, but, but our guests always think it means something else. So when you heard more than a test, what did it mean to you? Well, I think I pictured... <laughs> this may sound funny, maybe not what most people picture, but shifting from tests being these things that we take that summarize and tell us we're good or bad at something to testing just being something interwoven within the way we learn that is more just informing, here's where I'm at and here's where I need to go next. And something that, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, for students around tests because tests are these, you know, don't look at your neighbor's answers. Everyone needs to be quiet. And I picture getting to a world where Testing is more about just help me know where I'm at and what I need to do next. And it's on a regular basis. And maybe that, <laughs> so maybe that aligns with what Amir is trying to do. But. That's really lovely. Um, I want you to, we're a reading company. So we ask everyone to think of a, t a moment in their life where reading meant a lot to them. So it could be a moment of reading a book with someone or, you know, anything where like a literary moment that has shaped you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be candid and say, when I was younger, I did not like reading. <laughs> um, and I think it's because back when I was in like first or second grade and they started explaining all the ways that different word, different letters make different sounds, it confused me. And I thought, I don't know how to make sense of this. And I just checked out. And then I struggled as a reader. Um, but I will say that changed for me probably in high school when I finally started to see reading as not a chore I have to do for my class, but as a way to access knowledge and information and ideas that I found fascinating. That's really great. Do you remember when that happened in high school? Uh, no, not really. Cause it was such a gradual thing. And it was probably reading for fun more than reading for school where it happened, you know, reading. Um, I really like sci-fi. was probably reading some sci-fi novels when I was, when I was in high school. That's awesome. That's so great. Um, can you tell me about a piece of technology that you really love? Or that you're excited about? Yeah. Well, education technology or just technology in general? Anything. <laughs> well, I... Okay, this one does relate probably to education. All the buzz right now around generative AI and chat GPT, I've been playing with that and found it fascinating. Um, I don't want to downplay that like there's some serious things that society has to figure out 
with this technology and some serious questions to be asked. Um, but I have found it to be really helpful as a research assistant, um, you know, a way to get background information in an easy way, a way to play with ideas. And, you know, I wish that I could have someone at my side every day to, to have conversations with about what I'm reading and working on and thinking. And I don't have that. And it's kind of approximating that as close as you can without being the actual human that I wish was at my side every, every day. So. That's really great. I've, I've, I've heard this a little bit from different researchers. So um, I'm glad that you're finding it so helpful. But like you said, I'm sure there are lots of teachers who have lots of good questions about how this will impact <laughs> their classrooms. Yeah. Um, so like we said, there are probably lots of teachers who would love to spend their time doing the research that you do, the writing that you do, helping um, schools you know, disrupt and change. And what would be the best advice you would give to somebody who's sitting in their classroom right now, listening to this podcast and wanting to make a similar shift? Or have a similar impact? Yeah. Well, you know, when I got into teaching, I thought it was a really, like, pigeonholing kind of profession. And historically, it probably has been that way. Of Like, you go into teaching, and you're a teacher, and that's the career path you're on, is to either be a teacher or maybe move into administration. But I think the world isn't, isn't so much like that anymore. That There are lots of opportunities, both within the classroom, within schools, but also outside of schools, whether it's, you know, with, with um, companies developing new things, whether it's with organizations doing policy work, whether it's with organizations like ours doing research. And the teacher's perspective is really, really valuable. I think that's a, a myth that a lot, of, a lot of organizations have is they're doing work in education, but they're not actually talking to teachers and they're not bringing teachers on board to inform the work they're doing. So I think there's, there's opportunities out there. But I will say, too, like, I don't want to just point away out of the profession. Um, I, you know, I really enjoy the little bits of teaching I get to do with, with my own kids and my church community. Um, or, you know, sometimes I'll go and do workshops with educators. Um, and so, you know, teaching, I, also, I guess I want to give a plug for, like, you can also make a real big difference as a teacher. I think what it takes, though, is having the the courage and just the mindset of saying like, I'm not just going to, you know, do the things the way they've always been in my school or do the things the way I was told to do them in grad school, but thinking like, how can I, you know, how could things be better and how could I do things differently within this context that I'm in? Um, that's really lovely. And I, I think that, I think that's, I think it's really good advice for both the educators and the companies and the organizations trying to impact education. All right. Last one, one book everyone should read. Well, I'm going to make a shameless plug for a book that Clayton Christensen wrote called How Will You Measure Your Life? Um, it's kind of a different book, though, where most of his books were about technology and innovation and organizational strategy. This one was modeled after what, would, what was his last lecture that he would give in his class, where he would say, okay, let's take these, this, these lenses that we've used to analyze organizations and sectors and, look, and kind of reflect back on how we look at our own life through these lenses. And it's a just a really good book to think about, like, what really matters to me? And how do I make sure that I'm spending my life on the things that matter most and being true to my values um, and the way I live my life? And so it's a, it's a good read. It sounds like a really good read. I'll definitely put it on my list. I appreciate you bringing it up. I love all the ways that you've kind of interwoven um, Clayton Christensen's research and the work that you're doing and also all of the experiences you're having as you look into different parts of education. It's been really great spending this time with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks again for having me. 
Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.